David here in my conversation with the Chief Economist Todd Matino. We talk all about the UK, including the mini budget that Liz Trust has just announced, the European energy crisis, and what other countries can learn from the UK. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Todd Matina. Todd is our chief economist and co-lead of the multi-asset strategy team. Todd, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for the welcome. Great to be back on the podcast. I thought that I'd have you on the uh, podcast to discuss the recent uh, events out of the UK. Um, and uh, given your background with the IMF, I think you're, you're the perfect person to have this conversation with. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of concern about the energy crisis uh, for UK uh, residents and, and the government alike. Maybe I can just start by having you frame the situation there uh, right now. Yeah, absolutely. So the UK is going through a, a, a tumultuous time. I mean, everything from the energy price uh, cap, which you mentioned, and the um, and the mini budget on Friday, um, which which really created an incredible amount of uncertainty for the UK. I mean, a number of of economists have even likened what's happening in the UK to sort of a, an emerging market. Um, set up where we, which can lead into all kinds of turmoil. And we've seen that in the markets today. Um, you know, after the weekend, as investors started to digest what happened, we saw um, pound sterling reach a record low at one point overnight at 103.5 to the US dollar. Um, and uh, 10 year gilt yields also um, really surging, uh, creating a bit of a confidence crisis in the UK. So we're we're seeing quite a bit of market stress around these policy changes under uh, the UK's new prime minister Liz Truss. Uh, so I think I think this this turmoil is going to continue, uh, and there's even talk of uh, an emergency Bank of England meeting uh, to, to to potentially hike rates early to try to stabilize the pound. Uh, so interesting times. I think it really stems from an underlying confidence issue uh, in the UK's macro policies. I mean, we've come off a pretty um, volatile and uncertain period for the UK. I mean, really starting with Brexit some years ago, and there's been a number of missteps since. And now it's culminated with the sizable energy price uh, cap, uh, which could cost up to uh, 60 billion pounds over the next six months, 120 billion pounds on a full year basis. And then the mini budget on Friday, uh, which was really a misnomer, it was anything but mini in scale, it delivered the largest tax reductions in the UK in 50 years. Uh, so very sizable uh, fiscal measures, both with the energy on the energy side and now on the, on tax reductions, and this is in an economy where uh, it's already has before these measures very sizable budget deficits and sizable current account deficits. So the UK uh, tax reductions will add demand into an economy where inflation's running at 10% and the Bank of England's doing exactly the opposite, trying to restrain demand to get inflation under control by raising interest rates. So while this is not 
sort of your classic emerging market case you you it's the uk with uh, obviously with which issues debt in its own currency and has a very long track record um of stability but it does share many characteristics that we've seen in previous um periods of macro uncertainty and 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 turmoil uh, one where the budget deficit's expanding with unfunded tax cuts, where a central bank is doing the opposite by tightening to control very high inflation, and where borrowing is going to increase very steeply, and it's going to require uh, the kindness of strangers, so to speak, to continue funding. And foreign investors are demanding a cheaper sterling today and higher bond yields to compensate them for the increased sovereign credit risk. That's a great summary, Todd. You touched on a lot of different things there. I'm going to maybe go back and, and take them uh, a little bit more piecemeal. Um, the, the first one that I'd like to talk about is the energy price cap. Um, clearly, um, energy markets uh, across the world, but particularly uh, in Europe, have seen dramatic increases uh, in price. Uh, the UK has come out under Liz Trust to say that they're going to cap the amount of uh, energy you reference that it could cost as much as 60 or 120 billion uh, pounds uh, out of the, the UK budget. I'm curious, um, one, what, what's the overall impact of that 60 to 20, 120 billion pounds on itself, in, in itself? Uh, and then two, what options does the government have? I mean, you, you can't uh, allow for consumers, British consumers necessarily, to be bankrupted by, by uh, winter in, in their energy bills. So maybe comments on that. Yeah, so the energy price cap is—it's an important policy, and it, and it really was part of Liz Truss and, and her leadership um, campaign to to take on the Conservative Party and and become the new Prime Minister. Uh, in fact, all these measures are really uh, fulfilling various parts of her campaign promises. Starting with the energy price cap, you know, it is it is as you said, it's crucial. I mean, disposable income in the UK is really under significant pressure due to energy prices. And that um, creates huge, uh, I would call it uh, recessionary risk for the UK unless something was done. So the uh, the budget commitment is to, is to basically cap uh, the energy costs at 2,500 pounds for, for a household. Um, and that brings it lower than what had been previously planned, a cap of uh, about 3,550 pounds. And just based on sort of market spot prices, energy prices, the cost could be as high as almost 5,500 pounds. So these are dramatic differences for households. But as you mentioned, I mean, the cost to the budget is enormous to provide that price cap. I mean, basically, over the next six months, we're talking about 60 billion pounds uh, over a full year period. If these energy prices stay high and the cap stays in place, uh, we're looking at 120 billion pounds in the UK on a full year basis. So th these are enormous. It's it's over four and a half percent of GDP, and uh, you know the the uh, UK economy is starting with a uh, a budget deficit of about four and a quarter percent of GDP already. Uh, it's got a current account deficit of about five and a half percent of GDP. So these are pretty enormous uh, sized subsidies on top of already big macro gaps, big macro deficits. I would say, though, that there, it's not all downside. I mean, one of the upsides of the price cap scheme is that inflation should be lower in the UK than it would have been otherwise. So 
we have inflation running around 10% year over year in the UK at the moment. So very high and not anywhere close to the 2% target, like, like in many major economies, uh, inflation's a real problem. And of course, it's driven in large part by, by these sky high energy costs. So by capping the energy costs for households, they've, uh, it will have a, one very positive impact, which is to cap or, or to put some, some cap on, on CPI inflation. So just as an example, we could see inflation continue running around 10% for the next little while instead of perhaps much higher, 14% or even more, um, if there wasn't some kind of price cap. So that, at the margins, will take some pressure off the Bank of England, which is trying to bring inflation back under control. So there is some upside here in the price scheme. But the downside is that this is obviously going to add to borrowing requirements and basically foreign investors are going to have to step up to fund these big deficits. Uh, and that's where we're seeing the market pressure today is that um, these deficits, uh, since they will require funding from abroad, um, you know, investors have many places where they can invest and the U.S. is sitting out there as a place of stability. It's benef benefiting from this flight to safety in the world since most of the major economies in the world are under pressure, including the UK, investors are demanding a premium. Uh, we're seeing that in the form of this weaker sterling and, and higher bond yields. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, just to go back to the, the energy price cap scheme, I'm curious if you think it's going to work or if it's going to result in like rolling brownouts. Like I think about price uh, being the mechanism that matches supply and demand, of course, and if you make it artificially cheaper uh, and your supply of uh, it, of energy is fixed, uh, does this actually have negative implications for potentially rolling brownouts or the like? Yeah, no, I think that's an important question. And if I put my old IMF hat on for a moment, we at least in the old days, and I used to work in the in the fiscal group where we would advise different countries on how to design uh, subsidy programs, not so dissimilar to this. And this is not what we would have recommended. And the reason is that it's a, it's basically an open-ended fiscal commitment, which creates a huge liability for the budget. So suppose international energy prices surge. They've come down recently, but if they should surge again, the budget basically, basically has an open-ended commitment because of a fixed price cap. So the whole the fiscal cost of this policy is really unbounded, uh, which puts a huge amount of risk onto the government sector. And ultimately, if it does, if the price does surge and they need to, to protect that price cap, it creates a huge borrowing need. So you know it creates all kinds of macro stability risks and and fiscal risks in terms of the long term health of the public finances. Uh, in terms of brownouts and rolling brownouts, that kind of thing to try to conserve energy. I mean, it's a great question. I mean, one, one important part of this is another reason you might not want to have an open-ended subsidy and commitment is because it doesn't encourage conservation of, of energy usage, uh, which, you know, energy has become extremely expensive. It's more scarce. Uh, that's why prices are higher. So you want price signals to help people conserve energy. And when they have a cap that's well below the true market price, there it's you know it's likely that we're going to see usage not drop enough uh, to conserve uh, enough. And you could into you could end up in a situation of these brownouts as sort of a 
uh, a substitute. I mean, if you don't want to have a big, big, massive borrowing to finance people's usage, then the alternative is that you need to ration, which effectively is what brownouts are. Right. Just to turn to the second part of, uh, of the UK uh, crisis, the, the mini budget that came out, uh, you referenced the largest tax cut in 50 years. Uh, I think that the uh, talking point surrounding that tax cut is it'll be uh, it'll spur growth uh, and uh, ultimately it'll be beneficial for uh, for the UK. Sounds like, based on your previous comments that you're fairly skeptical of that uh, rationale. Maybe walk through that uh, in a little bit more detail. Yeah, and I think this is an important part of the of the story. Is uh, markets are obviously focused on the near term, but. Uh, I think Liz Truss and and her government, her new government, are really focused on a supply side growth agenda here, which is more long term in nature. So they've set a, a long term growth target for the UK economy of two and a half percent, and to try to achieve that two and a half percent, they have a supply side kind of formula: tax cuts, keeping corporate income tax uh, inc- uh, rates low. Uh, part of the fiscal package, actually, in the mini budget, was to um, uh, to kill a planned increase in the corporate income tax rate from 19% to 25%. So at 19%, they'll have uh, one of the lowest corporate income tax rates in, in advanced economies. Um, so these supply side formulas, though, are the the international evidence on whether they succeed is kind of sketchy. I mean, we have some cases where low tax rates and deregulation have been very successful. Ireland's a great example of that. But there's lots of other cases where large tax cuts really just created a sugar high in the near term uh, because tax cuts lead to increased spending and a surge in growth from the demand side, not the supply side, and ultimately becomes unsustainable. And, and when I think of you know that kind of thing, I think of the Trump tax cuts, for example, which you know were unlikely to have created a huge supply side surge in the U.S. economy. In fact, productivity lately has been very record low in the U.S. Um, the Reagan tax cuts back in the 80s were another classic supply side um, experiment. And it was very similar in a way. They Reagan um, cut taxes uh, with the idea of spurring growth and investment. And he did it in an unfunded way. The U.S. budget deficit exploded in the 80s. Uh, it's part of the Reagan tax cuts. Um, there's mixed evidence about whether that paid off. And if the U.S. tax cuts paid off in the 80s, it was probably up to a decade later. So we're talking about a very long-term growth payoff, if at all, from these measures. And in the near term, you have an economy that um, is really suffering. It's dealing with high inflation, uh, a labor market that's close to full employment, and a Bank of England that's trying to hike interest rates to get inflation down. So spurring short-term demand with tax cuts is probably the last thing the UK should be doing. Now, there is an argument that, hey, the UK is facing an energy crisis. It might actually be heading for a recession in the short term, uh, in the near term. So maybe an active fiscal policy actually makes sense uh, to try to to, help the UK economy ride out the volatility of a potential recession. The problem is these are permanent tax cuts, and you don't use sort of permanent tax cuts as a lever to manage business cycle fluctuations. You you could use other measures, other special tools in fiscal policy if you want to try to do that, but permanent tax cuts is not a very good solution for that. So, I think the uh, so I think the evidence on long term supply 
impacts from tax cuts and deregulation are kind of mixed. Uh, and even giving the UK the benefit of the doubt, they're long term. Uh, and right now they have a short term funding problem. That's great. Maybe we'll turn now to the Bank of England. And uh, you've referenced them a few times, inflation running at 10% uh, and sort of the additional, um, I'll say, motivation for inflation to continue uh, in the short term uh, tax cuts. Uh, what is the Bank of England's likely reaction? Obviously, they have to raise rates. How high will they have to go? And then how, how difficult is that going to be for uh, the UK government uh, to, to maintain uh, their debt in good standing? So, I mean, starting with the debt part, I mean, the UK's debt is clearly going to rise. Uh, total borrowing this year is going to be potentially the largest we've seen since the financial crisis. Um, so we're talking about very large increases in borrowing, which will, of course, mean large increases in debt. One of the things, just as a side note, that concerned me is that uh, typically when you when a UK government has a big fiscal measure like these tax reductions, they go to the independent um, fiscal council in the UK, the OBR, and ask it to provide an independent cost estimate of what the re what the impact will be on the deficit and debt. And they skipped that on for Friday's uh, mini budget. And then likely because the independent fiscal council would have told them and published that, well, these the increase the, the fiscal rule in the UK is that debt has to be declining as a share of GDP over three years. That's maybe not going to be the case this time when you have GDP is, is likely to be falling. There's a potential recession on the horizon because of the energy shock. And now you have this big increase in borrowing. So it's a little, in terms of credibility, it's a bit concerning that they skip that step, and it's probably makes sense politically why they did that. But it also, to investors' negative reaction, really speaks to why the market is is casting doubt on the credibility of this package. Now, going to your your original question, the Bank of England, and what, how long can, uh, they can sustain this fiscal package? I think the the. Um, Monterey Policy Committee was clear that fiscal policy is an important uh, variable in their in their thinking, and now we have a much bigger fiscal expansion uh, in an economy where the labor market doesn't have a lot of slack. Even though we're heading into a recession, the, the labor market's quite tight. So, the the Bank of England is seeing inflationary pressure, not only from higher spending because of tax cuts, but Importantly, because of the weaker sterling, uh, imports priced in dollars are going to be much more expensive. And uh, all imported goods and services in the UK, uh, most much of it priced in other currencies, will now be uh, will now be importing inflation effectively because of the weak sterling. So it makes sense that the the Bank of England, looking at a ten percent inflation problem at the moment, is going to have to continue hiking rates. Uh, and there's speculation today of an emergency uh, 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 rate hike by the Bank of England, partially to deal with the stabilizing sterling, but also just to deal with the inflationary side effects of the fiscal program. So, um, so we might. It's likely we're going to see a more aggressive Bank of England in its coming meetings. Um, you know, getting getting its bank rate above four percent seems likely. Um, so that's one of the unfortunate parts of, of this whole fiscal program is that it's not coordinated well with monetary policy. So if you're trying to boost growth, but you're 
pushing against a central bank that's right. trying to screen demand to get inflation under control. The government's basically borrowing a lot and may not get a lot of bang for its buck because the central bank's going to unwind it through higher interest rates, uh, not to mention that the higher interest rates will increase the cost of debt service for the government at the same time. So it's really kind of an inconsistent policy mix. I guess based on that inconsistency of the policy mix, uh, one would be supportive for uh, for sterling and gilts. One would be sort of negative for sterlings and gilts. What's your overall outlook uh, on both uh, the sterling and, and gilt market? Yeah, so I think the policy framework is really in flux right now. So your previous question, I think, was bang on. What will the Bank of England do next? If they come out with a statement, if they are not as aggressive as investors are likely to expect them to be, uh, we're likely to see much more downside pressure on sterling. Uh, I think if we don't see an aggressive Bank of England, uh, when we're looking at sort of record debt issuance of uh, in the gilt market, we're going to see investors demand a weaker sterling to fund that. So I think we, we could see um, much more downside in, in sterling in that event. The flip side is that the Bank of England comes through as expected and gets much more aggressive. Uh, the higher interest rates could help stabilize sterling. And we're already seeing sterling bounce back. Like after hitting that record low of... Uh, um, $1.035 this morning, it's now bounced back and it's now close to 108. And I think part of that is because investors are pricing in this, this more aggressive Bank of England. On, on, um, on uh, gilt yields, I mean, they've risen quite significantly. The 10-year yield is now yielding above the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Just a week or so ago, it was less than the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Um, so I think we're already seeing the credit risk premium, the sovereign risk premium for the UK getting priced in by investors. So here it's interesting because if the Bank of England is aggressive and starts hiking interest rates, we could see more pressure on, on the whole government yield curve, especially on the short end. But if, uh, if they don't, then we could instead see a weaker, a weaker sterling and bond yields in the UK won't go up as much. So it's, it's an interesting policy mix. Um, my team manages a number of funds. We, we were actually short going into this. Uh, we're now thinking hard about our positioning around exactly these questions because it, you know, it's a very volatile situation and it depends a lot on the policy changes that happen in the coming days. That's great. Uh, maybe my last question for you, Todd, is uh, this is um, partly due to the energy crisis as well as the, the tax cuts uh, that have come in in, um, uh, in the mini budget. Um, clearly, the UK is not the only per, uh, country that's been impacted by higher energy prices. It's a real concern across Europe, uh, across uh, parts of uh, Asia like Japan. What can these countries learn from the UK and the response that uh, Liz Trust has come back up with? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that's interesting is that the, the global economy, there's some similarities. Global growth is slowing, global inflation is high, but the regional variations are, are really significant. I mean, you have the UK and the Eurozone facing these externally driven energy shocks. Uh, you have Japan that's been fighting two decades of deflation that's finally getting some inflation. Uh, it may actually, the Bank of Japan might actually be welcoming some of this uh, imported inflation. Um, and then in North America here, we have 
a completely different situation where inflation is driven more by the sort of excess demand from the enormous stimulus packages during the pandemic uh, period in, in 2020 and 2021. Um, so we sort of have a common problem with growth and inflation, but the causes are different in all the major economies. So I think the lessons that come out of the UK is that we're going to be, uh, maybe from an investor's point of view, is that we're going to be facing a lot of regional variation uh, uh, over the next few months, I, I think. And that, I mean, I think that's going to create opportunity for investors uh, as well as risks to be monitoring. Um, when I think of the Eurozone, for example, um, they're starting in a somewhat better macro position than the UK. They, ha they're, they have a current account surplus. They've been preparing for uh, an energy shortage in the winter months. Um, but the weaker members are in much weaker, uh, or much more vulnerable position than some of the stronger members. So Italy, for example, is starting with a very high level of debt, over 150% of its GDP. Uh, it's dealing with a lot of political uncertainty with a new government today, uh, likely uh, more of a, a far right wing government that could get, um, you know, could raise sort of the, the conflict with Brussels and the European Union. This, what we're seeing out of the UK is this political uncertainty uh, uh, creates a lot of uncertainty for investors and can feed through into higher yields. Uh, so again, 10-year government yields in, uh, on Italian debt looks vulnerable to me. In Japan, switching gears you know, to another major economy, Japan is, is interesting because the Bank of Japan has just been uh, steadfast in keeping interest rates near zero, maintaining its yield curve control. So the 10-year Japanese government bonds locked in at no more than 25 basis points. Interest rate differentials versus the rest of the world are just growing and diverging, putting huge downside pressure on the yen. Um, so we might, but the Bank of Japan is actually seeing that as an opportunity to embed, you know, 2% inflation expectations after two decades of, of failing on that regard. So this may actually help the Bank of Japan achieve its inflation objective. It's not a good inflation. You wouldn't want energy inflation to be the, the source of your inflation. You'd much prefer to see it be sort of wage-driven inflation. But, um, but I think they're hoping to sort of segue from this, this episode of, of energy inflation to something that looks like more of a normal wage-driven inflation in the long run. Um, and I think that's why they've been so resistant to raising rates. But that creates, again, opportunities for investors looking at, uh, we see many investors borrowing, borrowing in yen, which are yielding about zero, and investing in higher yielding uh, investments elsewhere in the world. And that's been a, a good position to have this year. So I think, you know, being a tactical global macro investor, this is a, uh, an interesting environment to say the least today. Uh, there's lots of divergences around the world. It creates uh, risks, but also great opportunities. Well, Todd, with that, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast to share your thoughts in the UK. Uh, I thought it was very insightful. I appreciate it. Oh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. Great talking with you, Matt. Look forward to next time. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and Mackenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. 
Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.